Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And tonight, we're uh, very lucky and, and fortunate to have a guest with us tonight. Uh, we have four-time NASA shuttle uh, uh, crew member and, and commander, uh, Charles Precord. How are you, Charlie? Good, Chris. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Oh, great. doing great. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's always exciting talking to people who've actually been in the driver's seat to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to maneuver around and actually connect with another spacecraft going uh, untold many miles uh, in, in space. And, of course, you know, relatively speaking, you're, exactly. you're trying not to move as much as possible. You know, something that hadn't been done in, in over a decade of uh, a, a U.S. ship connecting with a, uh, uh, at the, uh, a Soviet or Russian uh, space vehicle. Uh, yeah, I was it, actually pushing 20 years um, wow. from the Apollo Soyuz in 75 to to us doing the docking with Mir in 95. So, wow! And it, you're doing it. You were doing it a little bit, a little bit more difficult because you're doing it kind of over your shoulder. If uh, or where when you were actually docking, were you working at the uh, uh, where the uh, remote manip- manipulator system was, or were you actually in the? Yeah. So the exactly. So we weren't. We uh, we were not in the, the normal. Um, pilot commander seats that you would occupy for ascent and return Uh, but once you're on orbit um, the aft station we called it um, had a hand controller uh, for not only the robot arm but also for maneuvering the shuttle so the left aft as you're facing the tail the left side of the aft panel would allow you to um, manipulate um, the shuttle's uh, orientation in pitch roll and yaw as well as in we could actually slide it left to right up or down or towards the tail or towards the nose from that aft station so we would actually look at the mirror in this case through the the windows over our head while facing the tail so we used to call it flying backwards but it was actually quite intuitive once you got into position to fly the vehicle were the uh, were the controls translated so that the uh, the stern of the ship was now the front of your ship? Is that how? Yeah, exactly. Okay. What you saw out the out the window uh, when you move the the controller, it would move in the direction your eyes would expect it to. So we used to call it a six degrees of motion because we could actually uh, do pitch roll and yaw like an airplane. And what you would want to do with that is get perfect alignment of your docking port to the docking port of the mirror, meaning that the pitch roll and yaw of the mirror had to match the pitch roll and yaw of the shuttle. Otherwise, you'd come in, you know, nose, if you were pitched nose up, the two, uh, the axes of the two docking ports would not be aligned, right? So we would predetermine that pitch roll and yaw that we needed to have, and we would set that in the autopilot, and we would freeze it. And then all we had to do is work on translation, which meant are we lined up such that we're not the nose isn't too far forward or the tail's too far aft or we're not too far left or right and then as the final axis of control was the rate at which you approached it that was in the vertical axis so we were more concerned about lateral translations than the typical airplane pitch roll and yaw because we would just hold 
pitch roll and yaw by autopilot. And it'll yeah. be a lot easier to describe that with a model in my hands, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that worked. I, I, can, I, I, can see, I can see through my microphone. I can see you waving your hands around. It's, it's just a pilot thing. I understand. Exactly. <laughs> Um, now, when when you were doing this, you were coming up from well, basically the bottom of the ship on what they call an R bar, which is a line from the the bottom of the ship to the center of the Earth. Correct. And um, I know that one of the forces that you're dealing with is gravity, uh, that it's constantly pulling you uh, away from where you're trying to get. Now, how, uh, was that difficult to maneuver in the final area, or how, how small a sphere did you have to stop worrying about that? Yeah, really good question. That. Uh, effect takes place over a longer period of time and uh, one of the things you'd see in uh, the maneuvers done in the movie uh, a slight miss I think uh, was that the, the like in the, the case of uh, Jack Swigert maneuvering uh, the command module they tended to put in an input and hold the input what we would do is pulse the input and each pulse would um, create a thrust and uh, only for the time that you were holding the input. So we would just pulse the stick and then watch. And so on the R bar, which like you say, is us coming up from beneath uh, the station on uh, a radial of the Earth, and that's kind of like uh, the, the name R is radius vector. So picture a line from the center of the Earth up through the shuttle towards the station. We would be on that line coming vertically towards the station. And as you made a pulse, it would start to push you towards the station, and then you would slow down. And so that was the way we would control our speed of approach, is we would make a pulse, and uh, we would watch its effect. And then as we started to slow down, if we didn't do anything, it would tend to pull us back away from the station, and we'd have to keep up with it. So we had a, a table that said for certain distances away from docking, you had to have certain approach speeds, and uh, we would... Um, have some gates at which we would check that, uh, you know, like a uh, thousand feet out, 500 feet out, 300 feet out, 100 feet out, 30 feet out, and the speed of approach had to be less at each of those gates, and uh, we would just use the control inputs necessary. We could either push towards the station with a pulse, or we could actually break with a pulse away uh, from the station if we were a little bit too fast to help that natural gravity effect. Something I don't know about Mir, is there any kind of station keeping involved on the Mir side of it? I mean, did they have anything to, to maintain attitude? Or they did, and it was called a station keeping attitude, and the two control centers would speak about, you know, they would agree on the orientation that we'd chosen. It was really what we called a local vertical, local horizontal, meaning that that attitude which would point the docking port towards the center of the earth and hold it there. Once we agreed on that orientation um, we would set the same and uh, and that would ensure that a line coming from the center of the mirror through its docking port through the center of its docking port and extending away from the station would be parallel to the, the same line from the center of the shuttle through our docking port so that they're lined up collinear and there's not a you know an angular gap that would form at contact um, and so they would freeze their attitude with autopilot in local vertical, local horizontal, meaning like your wings would be horizontal to the horizon, and you would be pointing the, the vector through the, the docking port towards the center of the earth. So that's where you get the term vertical and horizontal. And, and they would just go passive at that point. They would just let it hold that attitude and not do anything. They wouldn't put any inputs in to, to 
you know, move away from us or move toward us. They were just a passive target, and we would do do all the maneuvering relative to them. And that, just picturing that all happen, all happening. Yeah. From from the time you you arrived at the uh, at the Arbar radial to the time you actually you know did the hard dock, how long did that process take? Oh my goodness, it was uh, well over an hour, um, and we actually had um, uh, a station keeping at thirty feet that took uh, several minutes. But yeah, that that whole process from an R-bar arrival to docking was was probably close to an hour, or a little bit over. I yeah, I, I, I know that. To go get my timeline up. Matter of fact, <laughs> I may have my rendezvous checklist close oh. by here, where <laughs> I can answer those more precisely for you. <laughs> yeah, Don't you wish every guest was as prepared as Charles? There it is yeah, the I... SDS <laughs> seventy-one rendezvous checklist in my hand. Wow. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Just in case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the profile. All right. So it's uh, further out. So it looks like um, we would be. But yeah, it's in the in the one hour range, I think. So and beyond that, you know, coming in uh, just to back up a little bit because the whole process is kind of interesting. So obviously, um, as the station is in an orbit around the Earth, and the Earth is rotating, you know, through its day-night cycle. The station is in a hula hoop that's fixed in space, and the Earth is rotating under it, right? So right. what that means is, uh, if we're sitting on the launch pad, we have to wait for the right time of day for the station to be, for us to rotate with the Earth underneath the station, and then we, then we launch. Um, and so the whole rendezvous actually starts when we're on the ground, and it's it's roughly 42 hours from liftoff to docking, and um, and so we would first launch into an orbit that is lower than the mirror, meaning that we're if you picture their orbit and our orbit as being an outside track of a racetrack and ours being on the inside track of a racetrack. The guy on the inside track goes around faster, right? So we launch into an orbit where we're behind and below the mirror, and then we stay low to start to catch up. And as we catch up, we raise our at altitude towards theirs, and we start out many miles below them. Um, and uh, and then we gradually, over that 42-hour period, we raise the orbit um, so that relative to them, we're moving towards their lane of the racetrack. And what that does is it slows us down relative to them, and uh, we end up in a position that, you know, several miles behind them and several thousand feet below them. And we do those maneuvers by radar. We're pointing our radar at them, and we get information from the ground on their position relative to us. So it's fairly late in this 42-hour process that we get to the, the R-bar, at which point we're starting to take over manually and making corrections manually from that aft station. My checklist is... Uh, is not pointing me immediately to the exact time of arrival on the R-bar, but it's in here somewhere. But uh, it's it's just over an hour, as I recall. And your checklist is uh, based off of the mission lapse time of from launch, right? I mean, that, it is, really... yeah. So every time, every moment in the flight is counting up from um, liftoff in hours, uh, days, hours, and minutes. Exactly right. Well, yeah, one of the things that was going on with Apollo 13 because of their uh, their long burn on um, uh, the second stage when their when their center engine went out, they had to uh, basically change all their mission elapsed times to an additional uh, 
I think it was 43 seconds. They just had to add on everything on their mission elapsed time just simply because that's where, <laughs> that's how, that's how much longer they had to burn the second stage to get into orbit. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Now, Charlie, I, I got to ask you when you're, when you're getting ready to do a docking, or is there like in the film they, you know, I know they play up to stress because it's Jack Swaggart, but normally when you're docking, is it a pretty tense time uh, on a mission? It is because um, the parameters are pretty tight, and um, the um, the closure speed you have to keep under control so that at the moment of contact, you uh, you have n- nice alignment. Like I said, in terms of roll, pitch, and yaw, you have the right closure speed. Um, so we were targeting 0.1 feet per second, plus or minus 0.03 feet per second. So you know, if, uh, 0.1 feet is 1.2 inches. So that you can raise your hand at 1.2 inches per second, and you can see how slow we're actually going. Two vehicles, each weighing over a quarter million pounds, and we're actually controlling with that fine, precise control with the flight control system to get into position. And we want to make sure that contact is clean in the center so that the, the pedals and the hooks of the docking systems can actually latch and, and hold and not have a bounce, not have a... Uh, an excessive load from too much speed at contact. So yeah, it, it's once you the whole thing from the time you hit the R bar on in is an intense time frame because we're manually managing a lot of that, and it is a team effort because um, we've got one crew member on the radar and the cameras, got another on a laptop judging the arrival uh, trajectory. We have a printout of that arrival trajectory on the on the laptop. And he's able to give the commander some coaching about, you know, you're a little bit forward of the trajectory line, you're a little bit aft, and the commander can make inputs to correct all that stuff. Yeah, it, it all um, is choreographed as a team, and it's a very, very, very busy time of the flight. Are you also getting additional information from the ground? I would assume that you Yes, we do get some help from the ground on um, a, a lot of the data that we're looking at, and they will confirm... The validity of it if there's uh, you know data dropouts or if there's issues with um, uh, with any of the quality of the data they can say hey disregard that for now uh, the radar is drifting and we'll, we'll, when it comes back we'll let you know things of that nature I am uh, gradually picking up on on some of the the pages in here sooner or later i'll get you what you're looking for in terms of that whole final timeline are are you also trying to get that during a certain time of day when you're in orbit that you want to do it in daytime or is is that not not necessary because you're using radar it doesn't Um, yeah so that um that timeline is generally coordinated for a number of constraints. We want the crew, so what we did with shuttle, like I said, it was 42 hours uh, from liftoff to, to docking contact. And typically we would, uh, we would want the crew to get on orbit and then have a chance to go to sleep and then get up the next day and have a full day of prep and then go to sleep and then get up uh, on the morning of docking and have a chance to get to docking about crew noon time and then have the rest of the crew day to do the initial hatch opening and things of that nature. So the the actual point of contact that is planned is worked in around crew rest, time of launch, uh, the ability for the crew to prep things and uh, and so forth. Sometimes on my, let's see, it was my, um, my third docking, it turned out that that particular 
set of orbits resulted in uh, our orbit, our hula hoop, being perfectly in line with the sun. So as I arrived in close on the Arbars, looking not only at the station, but as we went through solar noon, the sun completely obliterated the station. That was pretty intense because for about a five-minute period of time, I couldn't see anything out the window. It was so bright. Wow. Yeah. So some of these things just kind of conspire based on all of the constraints that have to be satisfied to to make it work. From the time of launch until you're, you're, you're working, how long does it generally take you to get your, uh, your space legs when you're... Um, typically, each crew member um, kind of went through their own different, unique experience with that. And so what I can tell you is mine, uh, the very first mission, I didn't feel real well at about an hour into the flight. And I just you know, kind of plowed through that, and um, I was much better after I got a, a night's sleep and got up the next day. Uh, by the time I had done my fourth flight, it was like I never left this place, and I had no adaption, adaptation timeline really to worry about. It really depended on the individual's, you know, makeup and their own, you know, biological um, makeup and so forth, the way they they responded to their vestibular system inputs and so forth, but. Each flight, almost everyone had this experience, each flight got quicker, both going and coming home to adapt to the change. And it's like your body just remembers having gone through that and, and adapts quicker the next time. Oh, yeah, no, no surprise then, I guess. A question about the, uh, about the shuttles themselves. When uh, you've, you've worked on both, uh, or you've worked on, you worked on Columbia, you worked on Discovery and Atlantis. Do they have very much different feel in operation? How, how was not how a whole they... lot. The Columbia was the most unique. It was the first, and it was heavier, and it had um, um, fewer um, uh, operational systems that were adapted after it. Um, um, the panels and the crew interfaces for the other vehicles were all pretty much identical, whether it was Atlantis Discovery or Endeavor. Um, but uh, Columbia was a little bit unique as the first orbiter. Even that, though, what we had to work with on, on orbit was pretty much the same. It, it really was not much of a noticeable difference. I'm sorry. Chris, did you have a question? I'm sorry. No, I'm just um, listening. It's yeah. uh, uh, fascinating. I, I, Charlie was kind enough to be one of our, uh, our – well, he's kind of be our keynote speaker at Space Day at the museum a couple years ago. And, uh, I remember just sitting there taking it in. It was like, uh, you know, Charlie had this amazing slideshow of, you know, it's like most people go to the beach and bring back a slideshow of what they did. And, you know, Charlie was like, well, here, here's when we went to space. <laughs> you know, <it> was <laughs> just this, this awesome uh, presentation. So, you know what? It was the one a lot of fun. Oh, no, we, and we thank you for, for being so generous and coming and do that. Uh, um, so here's I, a number that you can use. You guys were asking about the final timeline. When we're at 300 feet... We do uh, an R-bar station keeping at, at is 45 minutes uh, from docking, so that'll give you an idea. Wow. So okay, it's a fairly slow process to move your way in there. Wow. But it must it must feel like uh, you, it's like finding a rest area on the highway. When you get to that point, you're like, okay, let's stop, and we can <laughs> yeah, this look a, at this all. A, it's like... There's a lot of planning going on to make sure everything's configured, everybody's ready on both 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 vehicles, and uh, you know, just take your your time to make sure everything's right no. so you know when, um, when you go back and look at you know you of course were on the shuttles so many of us no matter what field you're in whether it's medical or, or paramedics or, or whatever you know transportation we always go back and we look at like the generations before us look at their equipment and we're like oh man can't believe they did that with with this whatever it is 
Like, do you feel that way when you go back and look at, you know, like an Apollo or Mercury or Gemini capsule and you're like, oh gosh, I couldn't imagine, <laughs> you know, with doing that. Um, I really appreciate the advances we've made since then, but I can see what they had to work with and how it was workable. The Mercury is probably the most stunning, right? Because it's a single seat with a very rudimentary set of equipment. And, uh, but the timelines, the missions they flew were very, very short. And I often try to describe that evolution as Mercury was trying to figure out, can we even put a person out of, out of the atmosphere and get them back safely? And can they can the humans survive that evolution? Once we learned that we had an ability to control that, then Gemini was about can we do can we function in space? Can we do things that are productive, like being able to do a spacewalk, being able to do rendezvous and dockings, being able to do orbit adjust maneuvers, to be able to maneuver the spacecraft to useful orientations for scientific purposes, photography, documentation, all kinds of things. Gemini was about turning the ability to go into the ability to operate. And of course, that was all gearing up for Apollo, which was get to the surface of the moon and back, and everything that we tested in Gemini got turned into operational application in, in Apollo. And after we had been to the moon and back, the, the thought with shuttle was, how do we go and stay and not just do a touch and go? And how do we learn to live in space for long periods of time? So shuttle and station have been answering that so that when we go back and establish a moon base and or go to Mars and stay for long expeditions, you can think of them as a space station outpost on the surface of another uh, orbiting, you know, celestial body instead of in an orbit around the Earth. So there's a there's a real logical evolution here in, in how things transpired. So when I look at what they did back then, it kind of makes total sense uh, how challenging it was for them with where they were in, in that evolution. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about living in space, but if we could do that uh, tomorrow, because we're kind of running out of episode here, here. but uh, if, we, if we could all uh, regroup here tomorrow, that would be great. Uh, for folks listening uh, in and if you'd like to pick up on previous episodes where we discuss a lot of space history and, and, and space operations, uh, join us on our big site, uh, Apollo13minute.com, Apollo13minute.com. You can also find us uh, uh, previous episodes on iTunes and Google Play. Just type in Apollo 13 Minute and press subscribe, and you'll get it delivered hot and fresh every day, Monday through Friday. Find us on social media, of course, uh, at our usual places, Twitter, Apollo 13 Minute, and on Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more about working in living in space right here on the Apollo 13 Minute.